If you have your copy of Scripture, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 30 through 39 uh, this morning. We'll, we'll uh, read that in just a few minutes. Nehemiah 10, verses 30 through 39 this morning. I found the best way to find the book of Nehemiah, if you don't know where it's at, is, is to look at the front where it says uh, uh, contents. You see, and then you just find it, and then you find the page. It's it's uh, page three thirteen in my Bible. If if that helps you, probably not. So, uh, Siri, Siri wants to talk to me in the middle of my sermon here. All right, um, Nehemiah ten thirty through thirty nine. If you want to find your way there, has this ever happened to you? Uh, You buy something that needs assembly, but when you look at the instructions, they're not specific enough to help you assemble um, the product. Now, some of you probably don't even look at instructions. I'm someone that follows the instructions to a T. And perhaps when you get done, you have pieces left over, and you're thinking, what do these go to? Or maybe when you're assembling it, you run out of certain pieces. Or maybe you've asked for directions or had someone give you directions and they are very vague and hard to understand how you're going to get to where you're going to go. I once had a friend who worked as a prison guard and one of the inmates was giving him directions to somewhere and I kid you not, these were the directions. What you do is you go into Kansas and when you come to the McDonald's, you turn right. We were living in Missouri at the time, so I'm not sure. I guess you just drive towards Kansas, and when you come to the McDonald's, you turn right. Um, There are certain things in life that you need to be specific about, and you really should read over and make sure that you're clearly communicating what you want to communicate. For example... This morning, I thought I would give you some of my favorite bulletin bloopers this morning. In Sunday school, I was accused of not being funny. These are not mine. I found these, so hopefully they're funny. All right? So, Bertha Belch is a missionary from Africa. We'll be speaking tonight at Calvary Methodist Church. Come here, Bertha Belch, all the way from Africa. The Reverend Merriweather spoke briefly, much to the delight of the audience. Applications are now being accepted for two-year-old nursery workers. Barbara remains in the hospital and needs blood donors for more transfusions. She is also having trouble sleeping and requests tapes of Pastor Nelson's sermons. During the absence of our pastor, we enjoyed the rare privilege of hearing a good sermon... When J.F. Stubbs supplied our pulpit, the rosebud on the altar this morning is to announce the birth of David and Alan, David Allen Belzer, the sin of Reverend and Mrs. Julius Belzer. Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. The outreach committee has enlisted 25 visitors to make calls on people who are not afflicted with any church. The Low Self-Esteem Support Group will meet Thursday at 7 to 8.30. Please use the back door. The choir invites any member of the congregation 
who enjoys sinning to join the choir. At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. (laughs) Miss Charlene Mason sang, I will not pass this way again, giving obvious pleasure to the congregation. (laughs) Ushers will eat latecomers. Tuesday at 4 p.m., there will be an ice cream social. All ladies giving milk will please come early. Weight Watchers will meet at 7 p.m. Please use the large double door at the side entrance. For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. The ladies of the church have cast off clothing of every kind, and they may be seen in the church basement Friday. (laughs) One of my favorites. A new loudspeaker system has been installed in the church. It was given by one of our members in honor of his wife. Jean will be leading a weight management series Wednesday nights. She used the program herself and has been growing like crazy. This being Easter Sunday, we will ask Mrs. Lewis to come forward and lay an egg on the altar. Smile at someone who is hard to love. Say hell to someone who doesn't care much about you. All I want us to realize this morning is that sometimes we need to be specific about what we are communicating to ensure we're communicating the right thing. It is my belief that the Israelites here in Nehemiah 10 verses 30 through 39 are very specific about what they are communicating. So if you're willing and able, I would ask that you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read Nehemiah 10, verses 30 through 39. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, verses 30 through 39. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in gods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God, we, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions and the fruit of every tree and the wine and the oil to the priests to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. 
And the Levite shall bring up the tithe of the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your saints are listening. May you speak through your word this morning. May you instruct us, and may there be something that we find here written in the Scripture that applies to our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, we spent some time looking at what it means to be committed to a covenant. This week, I want us to see the specifics of this covenant and what that should mean for us as well. And I believe there are five specific issues in their daily life that are being addressed, and it implies that their promise to the Lord was costly for the life. And to be honest, our relationship with the Lord indeed should cost us something. First, notice that they and we must pursue God's will. We must pursue God's will. God's will for God's people was that they would maintain an uncompromised testimony across the centuries and share his unique message with other nations. What is vital for us to understand in our culture and generation is uh, for that to happen, they must avoid taking other religions and adding those religions to their worship and pretending like they are the same. And that's, we have a word for that. It's called syncretism. Now, where is that most likely to happen? Where are we most likely to take another religion and add it to our religion and pretend like it is the same? Well, to be honest, in marriage. In fact, we see it happen today. Now, those who agreed to this covenant, according to verse 28, separated their, themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. So when they began to reveal the covenant's practical implications, they started out by making this vow in verse 30 that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take the daughters for our sons. Now, when we read this, we might be tempted to regard this as some sort of a distasteful ethnic superiority, like, oh, they think they're superior to everybody else. But that's not the case. And let me give you some reasons why that's not the case. First, Israel's problem dealt with the fact that by wrong relationships, their witness was nullified. God's destiny for them was that they might be a missionary people. And for this to happen, then their message could not be corrupted. They lived in a culture where there was continuous onslaught of neighboring religions and other gods came to have a fascination to them, uh, this attraction to them. If you remember, they had the golden calf incident where Aaron collected the jewelry of the people and he fashioned the calf. and, And that would not be the first nor the last time that they would bow down to idols. And so it is against that backdrop that we must understand this prohibition of mixed marriages. At this point in the history of God's 
people, it was critical that their witness to God's truth remained pure and unadulterated. There were many reasons why marriages with pagan people were disastrous. They include scriptural, historical, moral, and contemporary reasons. First, scriptural. They were given all kinds of biblical warnings about the dangers of corrupting their faith with an unsuitable marriage. Israel had entered into a covenant with God, and this covenant began by affirming the uniqueness of God, and they had vowed not to even recognize other gods, let alone worship other gods. Joshua warned the people of his day that if they intermarried with people from idolatrous nations, their partners would become snares and traps to them, whips on their backs and thorns in their eyes. That's what you want to hear about your partner that you're marrying, right? Oh, they're a whip on my back and a thorn in my eye. Probably not, but that's the warning that Joshua gave. Secondly, there was an abundance of historical evidence that these forbidden marriage alliances had proven disastrous in their spiritual and moral life of Israel. Surely Israel could look at the past and learn from the past. In chapter 13, verse 26, Nehemiah makes a reference to a notorious incident of Solomon's apostasy. We'll get there eventually. His marriage to women from other nations who then uh, they set up shrines to other gods in Jerusalem, and they had a disastrous effect on the spiritual and political life of God's people. The people's idolatry through Solomon's wives led directly to a division of the kingdom into the northern and southern kingdom known as Israel and Judah. Later on in Israel's history, Ahab has a marriage to a Sidonian queen named Jezebel, which led to widespread promotion of Baal worship in the northern kingdom with disastrous moral consequences as well as the Lord's servants and the prophets were killed. Thirdly, there were moral reasons that they were forbidden to marry people from other nations. God made it clear that he regarded these other gods as detestable. To worship these foreign gods, it involved ritual and ceremony that God... This often inclu- included cult, prostitution, and sexual obscenities. God's revelation to his people was that they were to be like God. He is holy, therefore they were to be holy. He is compassionate, therefore they were to be compassionate. He is righteous, therefore they were to live in a way that reflected God's righteousness. A God of truth does not tolerate worshipers who tell lies. Those who honor a just and merciful God will not behave dishonestly and unkindly in the world. It was utterly unthinkable that people who had committed their entire life to God would be involved in immoral religious practices. Fourthly, Nehemiah... And the people were well aware from the contemporary scene of their day that it was disastrous for an Israelite believer to marry someone committed to the worship of other gods. Through written works outside of the Old Testament, we have a clear understanding of Israel's continual corruption through the gradual infiltration of ideas and practices from other religions. The corruption of Israel's faith was not some um, antiquated danger, but it was a present reality. If it continues in Judah, then the message that was entrusted to God's people would become corrupt, and it would fade into obscurity, being indistinguishable from the wide variety of religions of that period. Nehemiah didn't have to go looking far 
in Egypt to prove that Israel's distinctive message could be compromised. His older counterpart, Ezra, shows that even priests in Judah had broken God's law by marrying other women with other religious alliances, which led the way to being unfaithful to the covenant. In fact, again, later in Nehemiah, there's this portrayal of many homes in Judah where married partners had introduced religious ideas and practices from other countries and had taught their own children the languages of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab rather than the Hebrew of their father. So what is happening is that their own children were growing up in an environment where they could not understand God's word. Because the language that it was written in and spoken in was not even known to them that lived in Judah. Do you see the problem? The church had access to the word of God. The children had access to the word of God, but they had no way to understand it. So this is the whole prohibition against the marriage of people from other religions. That's why we had it. The issue was not ethnic differences, but it was loyalty. It was ethical purity. It was doctrinal integrity. The the law they had about mixed marriages was essential to Israel's missionary calling. It was not about some crude ethnic exclusivism, nor was it about nationalism. We know this because other races were free to embrace Israel's faith if they abandoned their own and gave themselves wholly to the Lord. People of different religions were free to join the Israelites even when they left Egypt as God's redeemed people, provided that they fully embraced Israel's faith. Ruth, who was a Moabite, is a perfect example of this. She was from another faith who turned to the Lord and was fully welcomed into the life of God's people. Once Ruth said, your God shall be my God, she no longer continued to worship Chemosh, the detestable God of Moab. The prophet Jeremiah had an Ethiopian friend named Ebed-Melech. Obviously, he came from a pagan background. Molech was a detestable God of the Ammonites. And to be named the servant of Molech, which is what his name means, indicated that he didn't have an Israelite ancestry. But he had put his trust in the one true living God. Israel had been entrusted with the most wonderful message in all the world. And nothing was to be allowed to corrupt it. The truth had to be faithfully preserved and not contaminated by contradictory religious ideas. It was to be handed down from generation to generation until a few hundred years after Nehemiah its great truths were passed to a devout Israelite couple who lived in a town called Nazareth. They would teach these great truths to a unique child born miraculously in their home. Jesus, the Son of God, he was to love, to share, fulfill, and expand that very message so that without any adulteration, it would be taken to the ends of the earth and to the ends of time. That is exactly why these laws seem so rigorous. Did not allow committed members of the covenant to mar their message and invalidate their witness by marrying outside of their faith. Now I want you to stop and think about this in our daily life. 
We are influenced by others more than we care to admit. The early church leaders knew that the uh, Corinthians lived in grossly immoral environment, and Paul reminded them of an old saying from one of their own poets when he said, bad company corrupts good character. What he is saying is that certain relationships are known to damage their faith, and they should be abandoned as soon as possible. He recalls the words from the prophet Isaiah, therefore come out from among them and be separate. John urged his Christian friends not to love the world or anything in the world, which might destroy their witness. James was more stark when he insisted that friendship with the world was hatred towards God. Peter told his churches that believers need to live in this world as aliens and strangers destined for eternity being servants of God and not slaves of the world. We are not to go live in a monastery somewhere, cutting ourselves off from everyone in the world to preserve our faith. We live among people because God has made us social beings. That's just who we are. We need one another. If a person craves only isolation, they are psychologically not well. As followers of Christ, we are to be glad to be among people in everyday life because we want to know, love, serve, and win them to the Lord. We must live in the world, but the world is not to live in us. And it's a delicate balance. Martin Luther said, Temptation, of course, cannot be avoided, but because we cannot prevent birds from flying over our heads, there's no need that we should let them nest in our hair. I don't have that problem. Before moving on, I want to say something about religious pluralism. We live in this pluralistic culture. right? We have an obligation as Christians to understand the message of other religions. And to not caricature their adherence and say, by, by saying things that are distasteful about their own faith. In a society that has a proper concern about human rights, we also value people's freedom to believe. And befriend them as people for whom Christ died. There may be helpful social and community projects that we get involved in. With people of other faiths. Or people of no faith at all. We can take a stand against things like abortion with people that don't even have faith at all. Still, the Christian message is distinctive. And we must not compromise its allegiance by going and sharing with events that are interfaith services, which give suggestions that all religions are equally valuable and basically heading in the same direction because they're not Christianity does not head in the same direction as a Jehovah's Witness they don't go in the same direction yes it is good to help the poor it is good to feed the needy and it can even be fine to do so with people of other faiths or no faith at all but if the uniqueness of the message of the gospel is not proclaimed, then it's not distinctly Christian. Nor is it evangelistic. Jesus made the claim that no one comes to the Father but by Him, and it is crucial that we make the same claim, even in a culture that's offended by a distinctly Christian gospel. We must lovingly and unequivocally affirm the claims of Christ. So in all you and I do, we should pursue 
God's will, just like they did. Secondly, passionately honor God's day. Passionately honor God's day. The covenant is further renewed with another promise. And that promise is that God's day will be honored. Look what they say. And if the peoples of the land bring in the goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. The Sabbath law must clearly be understood. Keeping the Sabbath holy was an essential component in their personal and corporate life. The weekly Sabbath was given so that they would honor God and enjoy rest and help others and declare God's truth. It was first instituted as a day to honor God. It was set apart from other days and given to God so that they might offer their worship to God undisturbed by the distractions of everyday life. Secondly, it was a day to enjoy rest. Leisure and relaxation were critical ingredients to effective living. And God had set apart for them by resting on the seventh day. The Lord knew that during their Egyptian slavery, they were worked day after day after day after day without any break. And this cruel, prolonged experience should never be repeated in Israelite life. Third, it was a day to help others. It was not just the Israelite householder and his family that were to rest, but also their servants and their animals and their neighbors and visitors. So any servants were not degraded by careless work. God was also concerned about animal welfare, as well as human rights, as their donkeys, their horses, their cattle enjoyed Sabbath rest. Even more, every stranger or refugee visiting their locality is also to be physically refreshed by Sabbath rest. The detail of the Sabbath ensured that the Israelites did not enjoy the Sabbath at other people's expense. When the commandments were repeated by Moses before they entered the promised land, the Sabbath law was a reminder of Egypt's tyranny, their heartless cruelty that remained on them as they never were allowed to rest. Fourthly, the Sabbath was a way to declare the truth. It was a silent witness to God's supremacy. What a great witnessing opportunity. Once God's people found themselves in their own land, they would have business contracts with people from other nations, from other cultures, from other customs, from other religions. It didn't matter how well an Israelite business was doing. On one day a week, he was required to close his shop and cease work on his farm. The Lord gave them that one day when all neighbors could know without any doubt that they had an allegiance to God, which transcended by far their business interests, their domestic concerns, or their social obligations. To unbelieving neighbors, it was a proclamation in very practical terms that the truth that God comes before everything in their life. He had told them to make that day special, and what he said must be done. The Sabbath was to be publicly affirmed. When they kept this day special, it would mark them out as a people that's different from everyone else. On occasion, even they were made the butt of ridicule. Each succeeding generation had to be reminded of the purpose of the Sabbath, and Nehemiah's covenant renewal gave them public opportunity to declare to everyone else their obedience to God and personal, practical, and public regulation. Now, several centuries had passed, right, since this law was given on Sinai. 
The wilderness pilgrims were these nomadic people. They were, in those days, they were, uh, would be no question of buying from fellow Israelites on the Sabbath because they knew that they didn't do that. Most of them were eager to maintain the holiness of the day. But once they're settled in Canaan, life is different. And now that they're back in Jerusalem and on the other side of exile, they have to be reminded anew of the importance of the Sabbath. Now, there were obviously questions because they asked them. We have them answered. They wanted to know, hey, can we sell on the Sabbath day? And can we purchase goods on the Sabbath from Gentile merchants? Whether it applied to just the Sabbath or holy days as well. They want to know, is this just holy days we're talking about? Is this the Sabbath? What, what days should we honor? And Nehemiah makes it clear, right? That food could not be bought on the Sabbath nor any holy day of the, of the year. Now, this day is important. It's an important paradigm for believers. From the days of the early church, Christians have made the Lord's Day, this day, Sunday, the celebration of Christ's resurrection on the first day of the week. It's their appointed day of worship. It's a, the early Christians' appointed day of service and rest. It's important for Christian believers to heed the obvious warnings in the New Testament about legalism and not to fall into the subtle trap that... that that our commendable desire to keep the Lord's Day special and like we keep it some sort of legalistic ritual like, oh, you can't even, you can't even lift a glass to drink out of it on the Sabbath day. Jesus made it clear that restrictive legalism was not God's will for his people. Both Israel's Sabbath as well as the Christian's Lord's Day were instituted for believers' spiritual and physical benefit, not as a cumbersome burden. Sundays present Christians with an ideal opportunity to honor God in public worship and witness. Furthermore, it should provide an opportunity for rest, relaxation, reading, prayer, as well as service to Christ. And that could include all kinds of things, right? You could do things together as a family. You could help a broken family have some experience of family love. You could call on the lonely person. You could visit the sick at home or in the hospital. You could offer hospitality in your home. You could write letters to missionaries. You could set the day aside for God. And that should have its unique quality to it. It's maintained so that this day, on this day, the Lord is honored. On this day, the Lord is enriched. On this day, we we enrich other people's lives. Although we can't insist that unbelievers respect Sunday as God's special day, we can certainly encourage other believers to keep Sunday special. Having the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. And if we are all work and no rest, it's a recipe for physical and family breakdown. The Sabbath is God's unique provision for not only his covenant people, but through them for everyone, so that those who are far from God would be brought near to God, and that they would be taught a God-centered theology. So let's set out to passionately honor God's day, not just for us, but just so that 
so that we might, through that, teach others our love for the Lord. That He means more to us than anything else in the entire world. Next notice, plainly, they plainly value God's world. They plainly value God's world. Notice they promise, and we will forego the crops on the seventh year. It's time to return to the covenant's decree regarding property, especially their farms and fields. Another aspect of the law of God given through Moses. This goes back to an expansion of the fourth commandment. First, they're declaring God's ownership. It's it's inserting some things for, uh, or a few things for us to hear anyway. First, it's asserting that they are declaring God's ownership. If the land is the farmer's land, then guess what? He can do whatever he pleases with it, right? But the law makes it clear that the land is not the farmer's. That he's simply entrusted with it. The land is the Lord's. So this law was a regular reminder that the land that they tilled was not their own personal property. God had entrusted the land to them, and they were his accountable stewards of the land. So what God says is to be done with his land, it's his land, and he says, I want you to do this with my land, guess what? You should probably do it. Listen, this is a reminder that everything we have is from God, that we don't own any of it. Paul told the Corinthians that their bodies were not even their own, but rather God's to be used for God's glory. He told his readers in Rome that our bodies are to be surrendered to God entirely so that he might use them as vehicles of worship and service. They were declaring God's ownership. Secondly, they were revealing God's truth. This was God's plan to impress on his people the truth that the proper care of land was vital. God gives to the people environmental education. Revealing that we should not pursue short-term gain at the expense of long-term desolation. The soil needs time to recover after six years of hard work. Not only people and animals need rest, but so does the land to recover the natural nutrients and replenish its resources. In our day, thousands of people are rightly concerned with questions about ecology and conservation. People going green is not something that we should despise or something that we should make fun of. Because you know why? We are stewards of the land. This isn't your land. The air you're breathing is not your air. Every time you take a breath, it doesn't even belong to you. It's God's air. You're breathing God's air. And so rather than sit back and and make fun of people... We should be doing the best we can to care about God's land by not polluting the air and plundering the forests and contaminating our rivers and acting like the world's resources are there for us to exploit for our own private use and pleasure. Thirdly, their act of obedience expressed love. Whenever the fields were left fallow for a year, there'd be a certain amount of produce that would automatically recede and the time uh in in this time the field would yield a modest harvest now here's the thing god's word demanded that in that year 
that, that the produce didn't belong to the tenant farmer, but to deprived people of the local community. That the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat, you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard, Exodus 23.11. The farmers would reach the seventh year at different times so that any locality there was a likelihood that somewhere or another there would be fallow fields, olive groves, and vineyards for the poor to go and collect a modest food supply to live. That's love. We have a compassionate God telling his children that they are to be just like him, compassionate. He is the God of the poor as well as the prosperous. He cares passionately for the widow, the fatherless, the orphans, the aliens in Israel. In our day, Christians can't be indifferent to the serious deprivation and hunger and homelessness in many third world countries. We must offer something more than just sympathy and prayer like, oh, I'll just pray for them. If we desire to honor the God who loves the needy, then we must do something. Finally, the Israelites were confessing their faith. When the farmer was confronted with the practical implications of this law, it would be natural for him to question it. How can I live when I'm going to be denied the normal cycle of seed time harvest? Can you imagine the question? What are we going to eat in the seventh year? I'm not supposed to plant a crop or harvest crops. How am I going to feed my family? This rule proved to be a graphic teaching aid. That obeying God means we also trust God. God promised that he would send such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. There are times in all of our lives when obedience to God will involve a venture of faith. We can't always see the way ahead with the clarity that we would like. But if we're doing what God says, we trust Him. You're not always going to see the outcome. Sometimes you've got to just trust in God. He will never disappoint you. May we plainly value God's world for others to see and may it serve as a testimony to others that we trust in the Lord. Next we notice, fourthly, that they publicly display God's love. Again, verse 31. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. They're willing to cancel all debts, which is an indication of the compassion of God. The Lord values people more than he values things. Stop and think about it. In God's economy, the welfare of the debtor takes precedence over the prosperity of the creditor. Remember, Nehemiah had already encountered these economic and social problems due to the serious poverty in the community. And he had taken active steps to put things right, but the plight of the poor was still there. Debt in Israel was rarely from careless mismanagement of money. It was typically traced to unexpected family deprivation. 
from things like death or serious illness of the wage earner, the collapse of the family business, or adverse conditions like famine. So in these situations, people had to borrow money. And even though lending with interest was not permitted, the burden of repaying the money they borrowed was often crippling to them. And what made debt such an agonizing burden in Israel was the incident of what's called economic slavery. So people in desperate circumstances would be compelled to sell themselves or even their children as slaves as a way to pay off their debt. Of course, this would have damaging effects on Israel's family life, which is regarded as one of their nation's strongest strengths. Debt is a crippling burden on anyone. It doesn't matter the generation. Millions suffer because of debt. Money management is an important topic of our time, and believers need to set an example by ensuring that they do not adopt a lifestyle that is beyond their income. So many Americans, right, will make $30,000 a year, but we live on $40,000. It makes no sense. Let me just put this out there for you. If you're having trouble with managing your financial resources, would you be willing to say, hey, I don't know how to budget. Just come to me and say, I don't know how to budget. I don't know how to manage my financial resources. I would love to get you some help. I'd love to sit down with you. I'd love to show you how to budget money. My wife doesn't like it when I sit her down and show her how to budget money, but but maybe you'll like it, right? We, I, I love numbers, okay? I would love to do that. Or maybe we offer a class, like a Financial Peace University class. I'm just saying as a body of Christ, we publicly display God's love by how we handle our financial resources and how we give possessions to others in need. Lastly, we notice this. Personal support for God's work. As we look at these last verses, we see this phrase over and over again, right? It says, the house of our God, the house of our God, the house of our God. And every verse except verse 35, where we have the house of the Lord. The previous verses have dealt pretty much with everyday life. And and, and, and now the verses turn to the temple, which has been built about 80 years earlier. It is one thing to build the temple. It's quite another to maintain the temple. The temple stood at the heart of their religious, moral, and political life. In symbolic terms, the temple proclaimed the presence and the power of God among his people and the centrality of spiritual things. In this covenant promise, the people are committing themselves to the worship and service of God. And in so doing, they wish to declare openly their determination to honor God in every area of their life. And these verses cover an impressive series of promises. And it gives... Uh, some really great insight in the importance of Christian giving. Let me give you a warning. Now, what I'm about to say has to deal with giving. And I understand that for some people, that may strike a nerve. You're like, oh, there goes the pastor. He's going to talk about giving. But that's okay. Because you know why? I'm just the messenger (laughs) saying to you what God's word is clearly declaring. What God's word is saying. So first, let's notice that the Israelites recognize the necessity of responsible giving. 
They're making this promise, declaring that they will assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give. And what are they giving for? They're giving for the service of God's house. They're making a solemn obligation before God to do all that was required to support the temple's worship and to maintain the priority of spiritual and moral values in the life of the nation. Secondly, the people respond to God's word by obedient giving. This is not an impulse of sudden generosity like, oh, I think I'll be generous today. Or a passing emotional gesture, but instead their giving is an expression of practical obedience. Those who love the Lord will do what the Lord says. Therefore, they're carrying out the command to give. God has been good to his people, and therefore, generosity is expected from them. Believe it or not, their obedience to follow God would affect the amount of money they had. Because if they made the required payment towards the upkeep of the temple and everything that is being required here, it meant that they would have less money for themselves. It's funny how that works. You see, their requirements were no different than ours. They are making a public affirmation through giving that God came first in their life. Some people say, God's first in my life. And we could say, well, let me see your checkbook and we'll see if he is, right? Where we spend our money is what we value most. They're saying we value God. We are giving to the work of God in our life. Thirdly, they recognize the necessity of obligatory giving. It's not optional. Everyone was required to give in one form or another. Everyone would benefit from the ministry of the temple. Everyone, therefore, supported it. In other words, a work for all is not reliant upon the charity of few. So much Christian service in our world today, evangelism and education and medical and social, at home and overseas, depends on the generosity of a minority who are willing to make immense sacrifices. That was not God's plan. The promise focuses in on two vital aspects of ministry. The temple to God's people to offer praise and to secure pardon. All of the people had cause to praise God for his generous gifts. Therefore, they all give. God had been good to them. And money was needed for regular grain offering and the burnt offering and the offering of the Sabbath and the new moon festival and appointed feasts and for the holy offering. So they gave. But this was also a time for them to bring families and communities together. And so they would sit with the priests and they would share a meal together, food together. There were times when people from the community who were deprived would be fed generously during this time because they would come together and eat. Thanksgiving is a vital element in our spiritual life. There's always a gift from God that we can acknowledge. But also every work person had a reason to seek God for cleansing. Support was necessary for the upkeep of the temple and its priesthood so that guilty people could present sin offerings. They had to have somewhere to to present the offering and they had to have someone to present it to. Therefore, they had to support the temple and the priest in order to be able to do it. Sure, they could rejoice in all these gifts from God, but the greatest was his promise to forgive them 
when they sinned. And they knew that. And so they gave to upkeep the temple, to keep the priest in the temple. Christian believers had the assurance not only of God's unfailing promises to cleanse us, but also the assurance of Christ's death on the cross as he offered himself in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. If we acknowledge our sin and seek a pardon, our cleansing is assured on the basis of what Christ has done and what God has promised. Every person in Israel needed the ministry of the temple and its staff. Therefore, everyone was required to support it. Fourthly, they were recognized the need for systematic giving. This wasn't haphazard. It was carefully planned. They gave precisely what they were supposed to give. They knew what they were supposed to give. And they made the effort to give. Fifthly, there was proportionate giving. Israel's sacrificial system, there was clear recognition that not everyone could afford to give the same kind of offering. So provision was made for those who had less. For example, those who couldn't afford a bull or a goat or a lamb could bring two doves or young pigeons. And if they could not even get that, they could bring an epaph of flour, of fine flour, for a sin offering. The wood offering that's described would, would have given many poor people a chance to give to the work of the Lord. Instead of money, they could give time. Wood was a scarce resource, so they could go out and gather the wood. That's one of the greatest resources we can give is time. Time to pray. Time to meditate on God's word. Time to share the gospel. Time to listen to others. Time to time to visit the lonely, time to do practical kindness for others, all in the name of Christ, time. Here's the thing, church. It's the spirit by which we make our offering and the element of costliness it entails that counts. It's the spirit in which we make our offering and the element of costliness it entails that counts. Some can give large amounts of money but it really cost them nothing. Because it's not a sacrifice. It's no sacrifice for them. And if that's you, I would ask that you consider giving even more. For some, time is their most costly commodity. And that's what they can give. For others, maybe it is money. Sixthly, they were called to sacrificial giving. They gave the first fruits. The Lord had given so generously to them, it's, it's not appropriate to withhold gifts from him. Seventhly, they had prescribed giving. They gave a tithe of their crops, giving a tenth of the produce. Eighthly, they gave comprehensively. The tithe of the crops was for the maintenance of the Levites, but those who were supported also gave a tenth. That way they received. In other words, the Lord's servants were not exempt from giving. The Levites would benefit from the generous, regular giving of the people. In turn, they would maintain the priesthood. Lastly, they had organized giving. They were not only how much was given, but also who was responsible for the collection of the gifts. 
It was to be in the hands of the primary beneficiaries of the gifts, the Levites. But they were always accompanied by another responsible person who was a priest. And this isn't to say that, oh, we don't trust the Levites. That's not why it happened. It was, it was set up that way so that there couldn't be any accusation of impropriety. So the Levites and the priests collected the tithe. In closing, I want to take just a moment. And I want you to consider these five specific promises. Right? They declared they would pursue God's will. Are you doing that? That they would passionately honor God's day. Do you passionately honor God's day? That they would plainly value God's world. Are you valuing this world or do you think it's here to serve you? That they would publicly display God's love. Are you publicly displaying the love of God? That they would personally support God's work. Are you supporting the work of God? To what extent? Is it truly a sacrifice? And be reminded that these truths are just as vital to you and I today as they were to them. What they were doing was very specifically confessing God's sovereign control over every aspect of their lives at home, at work, at worship, in trading, in commerce, in their social contact with other people, and in their spiritual obligations. Will you learn from them this morning? Will you this morning wholeheartedly be specific about your commitment and confess Jesus is Lord of your relationships, of your time, of your possessions, that he is Lord over everything? Will you specifically surrender all to him so that others will see that Jesus is Lord of your life? Surrender everything, your time, your treasure, Everything is his. Will you say, God, it's yours? Maybe you are here this morning and you've never even surrendered your life to Christ. I would invite you to do so today. I would invite you that if God has spoken to you in some way, shape, or form, that you respond to his word, whether it's coming here for prayer, whether it's praying in your pew, whether it's grabbing me later and saying, Pastor, I need to talk. However, God has spoken to you. Does he have all of you or just some of you? Let's close with prayer.